Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Tim Donahue, an English teacher at the Greenwich Country Day School in Greenwich, Connecticut, joins us to discuss what grade inflation looks like in the classroom. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber reports on a new study that examines if Tennessee's new school funding law really is progressive. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for uh, David to be grumpy. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Tim Donahue. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, Tim is an English teacher at the Greenwich Country Day School, uh, and he's here to talk about a fantastic op-ed he had in the New York Times. We will get to that in a moment. First, let's welcome my co-host, David Griffith. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. All right. So, Tim, first of all, Greenwich Country Day School, I assume Greenwich, Connecticut or Greenwich, New York. Where where are you? I'm in Greenwich, Connecticut. I don't know that there is a Greenwich, New York, but I may be wrong. <laughs> I feel like I had some relative that I, I always got confused that there was like maybe maybe one. Maybe I'm making that up. I'm not sure. I mean, unless I'm just going to the wrong school the whole time. Fair to say Greenwich, Connecticut. Quite the affluent place. This is, uh, you get to educate the children of hedge fund bazillionaires? Yes, it is a, it is a very privileged school that looks its part. It's it's actually a, a new high school, which is kind of exciting for me. I'm new to the, to the school, actually. And you may appreciate that our large new high school building was largely funded by the Winkleboss twins. And originally famous from from Facebook and, uh, of course, the movie about Facebook. All right. That's that's fascinating. Well, hey, we saw your great op-ed in The New York Times about grade inflation. Let me see. Let me get the title right. It said, if everyone gets an A, no one gets an A. Let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. We've talked about this issue a lot on the show over the years, and especially in recent years. You know, we've published a few studies by Seth Gershenson on the topic. The SAT folks and the ACT folks have all published various research showing, even before the pandemic, that uh, grades were drifting upwards, uh, even though test scores were flat or even down. So, you know, it's not that kids are learning more. They don't seem to be learning more, but they're getting better grades over time. Uh, we certainly see this, especially in affluent schools, that this is happening. And so the question is, you know, why is it happening? Is it a problem? And what might we do about it? So, Tim, take it away from your perspective as a teacher. Why is this something worth raising the alarm bell about in the New York Times? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, you do great work with it, as I discover. But for as much as it's in the air, I just don't see enough written about it. I don't hear enough talk about it. It is interesting in the week after... Yeah, maybe I'll call myself a trendsetter, but of course, I think it's the gravita of the New York Times. But I did notice several articles in the, that follow, you know, the week, last week, right after mine came out on Monday, I think there was a few out on Wednesday, Thursday about the same subject. I just think there's a hunger for it and, and it, people are worked up about it. I think it's such a such a presence in, in my day-to-day operations as, as a high school English teacher. Now, I teach at a private school. And that's been my career. I was prior to this, I was at a school called Fieldston in the Bronx. And, you know, from what I saw, there was just diminishing room for students to show distinction for themselves. 
you know, I, I last year I advised seniors. I had an advisory with kids applying to colleges and I was looking at their grades and they were really good students, great kids, but almost every grade was an A. And I'm thinking these kids are not the only ones sending their transcripts off to competitive colleges. And after a time, it does them little service, right, to have every grade be the same. In the article, I highlight this Freudian concept called the narcissism of minor differences, right? That if you have this tiny aberration, well, you really stand out a lot. And, you know, for a long time, you could argue that, well, giving really good grades helps a student's mental health. However, when everyone is getting the same thing, I actually think it has a backfiring effect. And I definitely notice it adds uh, layers of, of stress upon an already fraught time in a youth's life. Yeah, no, and you know, and you say, I, lo- I love this, you say grade inflation after all acts just like real inflation. You know, you just say that the that if everybody is applying to the same college with with an A and now you've got an A minus, suddenly it seems like something is wrong with you. So, okay, that's from the perspective of the student. But I assume that there's also, you know, this is, what does this do to the school? You know, what happens if, and, and why is it happening? I mean, is it coming because, is it true that just all these kids are doing A level work or is there pressure coming from the parents or elsewhere? I'll back up and just say, you know, as an English teacher, right, and I get to teach a relatively small amount of students, I really value feedback. If I had my choice, really, I I would not have grades, right? I would just have straight feedback. But how do we quantify that on a national scale? What I can say is that when you have uniformity of grades, the feedback becomes less important. And it, it gets that, you know, you can write as I often do, you know, 500 words on an essay with comments, but it's just that one letter, right, that gets noticed. And I would like grades to to have more range so that there is a greater attention to feedback and ideally a greater attention to how to improve grades based on that feedback. But I, I mean, I can say that, you know, as I also write in the article, here we are, it's end of October. I'm at a new school, but, you know, I've met my students and you know, I see they have complex lives and they're trying their best by and large. You know, they play serious levels of sports and they lead clubs and they're getting involved with international relations discussions. They're showing me their hearts, right? So on the one hand, you know, you don't want to be the one teacher to give them a B plus when all the other teachers are giving them A's. So I I think part of it is a little bit of a uh, um, unwritten I'll say conformity, right, out of out of sort of deference to a lot of things, but wanting their child or their student to have the best shot to be the best they can be. So there is that as well. Yeah, it's so interesting, you know, because, Tim, it sounds like, you know, in a school like yours and uh, the ones you've taught at, of course, the thought is all about the competitive colleges and are you going to ruin the kids' chance to get into the Ivy Leagues or to something like it? You know, I can think about the kind of school where David taught, you know, which was a high poverty school where, you know, there's the teachers might be worried about being the teacher that gives the F that's going to lead to the kid dropping out. And obviously, those are very different kinds of life consequences, but it still is the same. It's that you... You can't solve this problem one teacher at a time. You've got to have some kind of school-wide approach to this or else, you know, all the incentives are to, to conform. David, you want to get in on that? Yeah, Mike. I mean, it's it's actually, it's a good segue because 
everything that Sim was saying rang very true to me, despite being in a very different context, right? And basically, my first question when I <laughs> when I got to the school was, you know, what do you do here, right? I mean, half these kids aren't on grade level, right? What am I supposed to, you know, what kind of grade am I supposed to give them, right? And that is fundamentally a question about what everybody else is doing and what is expected of me and um, what is sort of institutionally, culturally appropriate. You know, I think that's, it's very powerful, right? You don't want to be the one teacher who's way out there on your, uh, you know, where, whatever, wherever the standard is, you don't want to be out on an island, out on a, a limb all by yourself. How that level gets set, I think, is another question entirely. But I'll just say, I, I don't know how anyone is supposed to, any individual school is supposed to fight this either, because I just think it's much deeper and broader than that. And uh, there's a sense in which a school is shooting itself in the foot as well, if it just gives all its kids C's. So, you know, it's a collective action problem, you know, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, and it's kind of a wicked one. Although it, it does seem like, you know, if, if the colleges, especially the most selective colleges, they know these schools and they know what it means to get a certain GPA. I mean, isn't it true? I mean, you advise kids, Tim. I assume that it's at the end of the day, some of these colleges are going to compare your students to one another. Right. And they're going to have in their head, hey, we're going to take a certain number of kids from Greenwich Country Day. Uh, or Fieldstone. And and so then the question becomes, which of these, you know, 20 kids who applied should be among the ones we say yes to, and, and we're going to compare them. I mean, and so it really is tough on the teacher that you give that B plus, uh, you know, that could be, you can't get away from it, that it could actually hurt a kid's chances of getting into their dream school. Yeah. So w- one thing that was interesting was, you know, writing this piece, uh, you also get the readers to, to comment, right? And there were about 1400 comments and probably would have been more, they kind of cut them off, and uh, I, I really enjoyed reading them because they. Well, they uh, Jim, you never read the comments. Come on, you know that what? No, no. I, I've specifically asked my editor to to have them because I, you know, kind of w- was hoping to raise a bit of a chorus, and and I think that is is happening. But one of the points somebody made was, or, or several people was, you know, sometimes if if you can give the grade for the class, but then also next to it the average grade in that class, then it can have, you know, more relativity. And very much, I agree with David, like this is, you can't do this alone. So one of the things I was questioning or, you know, keep keep questioning is who is driving, you know, grade inflation, right? Is it colleges that demand flawless transcripts or is it high schools that some kids truly do deserve A's and we know that there are some who are getting them because of convenience really, you know, how do we get these entities to really talk to each other in a constructive way? Because another downside, right, of great inflation is that it makes students careful and nervous in ways that I think really prohibit the kind of free form thought that we're encouraging. At least we are in English class, right? In history class, an interconnection, you know, interdisciplinary notions, taking some risks. Uh, when you have to really hand things in that are polished, yes, it's good if they, you know, they follow the rules, but but it can belie some of the kind of quandaries that we think, um, you know, for instance, when when you look at whether an essay is written by chat GPT, they check for qualities of burstiness and perplexity, you know, and those are, to me, are the earmarks of developing thought, right? Like if you're teaching an actor how to do a monologue, it's often that they are discovering the meaning as they as they give it, right? 
And, and so when ideas are safe and kind of finished when they're handed in, it's, um, it becomes a sort of a different experience for you. Yeah, that is so well said. Well, Tim, uh, again, appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I imagine you are a, a joy to take English class from. Uh, and congrats on the New York Times article. And thank you for for starting or at least continuing this important conversation. Oh, likewise. It, it is a tough one to solve. It certainly is one reason why tests, as imperfect as they may be, uh, you know, seem to have at least some usefulness. I, I'm not going to make you say yes or no on that one. but Well, I, I will say, you know, I guess I shouldn't read the comments, but I think that was the first comment. And the most popular comment was, you know, because I, I referenced like 80% of, of colleges or more don't require tests. Again, how do you sift? I, I don't know. Yeah, no, exactly. This world where we're going to pretend that we're going to ignore the test scores, but now we can't trust the grades either. It, it is a quandary. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Uh, this has been... Tim Donahue, uh, English teacher at Greenwich Country Day School in Greenwich, Connecticut. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Tim. Pleasure. Thank you. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. All right. I am curious about Halloween costumes. Uh, now, Amber, tell me if I'm wrong. I'm assuming you're not dressing up for Halloween, but it, is that correct? <laughs> that would be a correct assumption. Although I will admit I miss Fordham dress up for Halloween days. It's one thing you lose when you're not coming into the office regularly anymore. I know. And my son, Leandro, who loves Halloween, 13 years old, uh, asked me if I had any you know, corny dad joke ideas for, you know, my education Halloween stuff this year. And I do have an idea, you know, it's that you have to get together with a group of friends, everybody dress up like a book, which I'm not sure exactly how you do that, and then grab different instruments and you'd be a book band. Uh, <laughs> what a bump. All right, Davis, save us from this. What are, what are your little kiddos going as? We got one Willy Wonka and one Oompa Loompa. So, oh, they're gonna match. Oh, oh that's great. Yes. Yeah, and people even got it. I mean, we had we had Halloween on on Friday. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Halloween, but it's it falls on the Friday before Halloween, and so we got to preview everything. And I didn't think people were gonna get it, you know, because she just looked like you know some sort of clown that had checked out of rehab. But people got it. So. <laughs> Well, then you must have done an excellent job with the with the costumes. That's right. All right, Amber, on to more serious material here. What you got for us? All right. We have a new study that looks at Tennessee's new weighted student funding formula model. So this is like 2022, just getting off the ground. And we've got Chris Candelaria and Corey Codell and a couple other economists who are digging in deeply to kind of see if this thing is playing out like uh, policymakers intended it to. So this, just for folks, just a little background, weighted student funding allocates funds on a per-pupil basis, not on a staffing-based allocation. So they are looking at the degree to which state funding is progressive on paper versus in reality. So in this case, because you can define progressive funding different ways, but in this case, it's the degree to which more resources are directed to low-income students. You can have it directed to kids of different you know, identifications, but here we're talking about low-income. Then they look at what may be driving the differences between the formula-intended amounts and the realized funding progressivity, okay? So a little bit about the formula. 
Uh, Tennessee's new formula includes a base amount, which is roughly 6,900, provides additional funding because this thing gets complicated for students with specific attributes, including poverty, uh, you know, the, the language emergent level of kids, their special education status. And then you get another sort of add on for students who attend schools and districts with other attributes like the school is small or it's located in a sparse district or it's a charter school. And the weights vary, uh, but again, we're looking at ED, educationally disadvantaged kids. They get 25% of the base amount. Then the EL weights vary between 20 to 70% of the base amount. And the special education categories vary from 15 to 150% of the base amount. On top of this, Tennessee then published a projected funding level for each district based on these new funding allocations. And they, these analysts use those funding projections to compare to actual, you know, projected funding. But basically, they're they're going to take these projections and, and see if they're actually intended uh, doing what they said they were going to do in terms of the bottom line for kids. So uh, the new funding system, again, it's an additive increase. So some states have like, well, you're either special education, you know, kid, or you are ELF. But you can't be both. You're one or the other. Uh, but Tennessee actually uh, adds on. So if you're in more than one category, then you're going to get an additive amount. So that means that they can use the district shares of students in each category to replicate the district allocations and the projections and verify again that the system is working as anticipated or not. All right. Results. The base funding accounts for most funding under the formula. So that's no surprise. That's 76% or the base funding. Then the largest category outside of that is the ED kids, so the low-income kids. They account for 33% of all Tennessee students. Then you got the students that have language needs account for 4.4% of total funding. And kids with special needs account for 5.7% of total funding. And then those add-ons that I told you about for various district and school attributes, they account for a little over 8% of total funding. All right, so their definition of progressivity is based on the difference in exposure to district per pupil funding between poor and non-poor students on average statewide. And then they go into this thing and they say, you know, the ED status is, it's not like FRL basically. In Tennessee, they use this direct certification method where they actually track whether kids are receiving welfare subsidies and food stamps and that sort of thing. So even when they try other ways of measuring disadvantage, it's basically this very similar. So this is, you know, pretty, pretty strong way to identify uh, disadvantaged. All right. Bottom line, the formula intended funding gap. The formula intends the gap between ED and non-ED kids to be $1,715. But after they implement their formula, which captures, again, the difference in exposure to per-pupil funding, the actual gap in exposure, when you really uh, get down to it, between the ED and the non-EDs is just $299. So it's 17% of the formula intended gap. So the, they intended the gap to be between ED and non-ED kids to be, you know, over $1,700. In actuality, it was only 17% of that gap, almost 300 bucks. And they say that the attenuation of that gap is basically driven by the mixture of poor and non-poor kids within districts. 
And then you get this definition, I mean, this sort of um, uh, description of, you know, everything that causes like, you know, this particular mix of kids in these districts. You've got residential segregation. You've got the district boundaries look different. The size of the district um, is a factor. All these things interact in a very complex way. And so they basically say they look at each of these categories and they say funding for ELL and these district and school attributes is progressive since these, this gap declines when those categories are removed. So basically, um, then they start saying, OK, uh, you know, which one of these components of this formula are explicitly tied to poverty and which aren't? And that's where they start getting, you know, some of these gaps get lessened. And they find that special education funding is progressive neutral for poor students. Um, there are very few kids who require those top levels of special education funding. And they do this sort of um, simulation where they adjust the formula. So all factors except individual student poverty receive zero weight. And then they distribute that excess to poor students. This is, again, a simulation. And then that increases the progressivity of district funding by 124%. So the bottom line is that there are trade-offs uh, and that some of these categories are correlated to ED and some are less correlated. And that makes a difference in how these weighted student systems play out. All right. Did you, did you, get, the, did you get the crux of that? Because it was not an easy study. Yeah, we got it. I mean, yeah. insofar as there's something to be gotten, I, mean, <laughs> I feel like I'm still struggling to, you know, to understand what's going wrong, right, Mike? I mean, okay, the sped that that seems like a big factor, right? It's it seems like, and I don't know, maybe the sped identification rates are right, or maybe they're not. But either way, it's kind of muffling the the impact of it. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel cynical, but how did I, you know, beforehand, somehow I knew that it wasn't going to be as progressive. I mean, sort of a priori, there's no logical reason it should become less progressive when we take all these things into account, right? It might become more progressive, right? It's not obvious to me just, and yet somehow I just knew that it was going to become less progressive. And so I feel like a conspiracy theorist, but like, why? What What is it? What is this telling us about the world that these sort of you know, seemingly neutral things always seem to work out in this particular way. And despite our best attempts, we can't seem to make a stack of money be bigger on this side of the street than it is on the other side of the street. I mean, that's not a complicated thing to execute. I, I feel a little frustrated because I am. You, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist. You just have to be a political scientist, right? It's politics. I mean, of course. I know, but what are the specific mechanisms, Mike? Like, <laughs> what, like what is happening here? We've got the SPED thing. We've got... uh what was it, district size or? District boundaries, the size of the districts. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the SPED thing is interesting, but the special ed is, is you know, I was wondering, well, is that just because it's so much money and it's it's not progressive and so that washes out some of the other stuff? Or is it, you know, you mentioned about identification rates. That's interesting. You know, is it that, I don't know, some affluent districts are identifying a ton of kids as, you know, ADHD or dyslexic or, you know, learning disabled in some way and, and spending, getting more money for those kids as a result. You could imagine some of that stuff happening. But look, you know, you have to make some political compromises in order to get something done. 
right? And so that is showing up here. I mean, it sounds like they did not, in the end, have a creative formula that was that linked everything to poverty. You know, so there you go. It does make me think. I don't know. My friends down in Tennessee, they all won a big prize last year at the uh, Pine Nut Eddies for Game Changer of the Year. I don't know. Should we take that thing back now that it's not as big a deal? I'm kidding, people. I'm kidding. Just bitter that Ohio's great efforts on charter school funding did not yet win that award. But look, it's uh, look, we, you know, that in the real world, things get complicated and you've got to get people to vote for these uh, for these kinds of reforms. And so, you know, the elected representatives are doing their job. They're trying to figure out how to make sure that their districts get a fair piece of the pie. Okay, so, Mike, what I think you're saying is that you think this is at some level deliberate and it happened before the law was passed and there were people sitting there with calculators crunching the numbers and not saying anything. But they understood that that when it all penciled out, this was not going to be as progressive as it appeared on the surface. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to, for example, put extra money in there for small districts or small schools, if that's somehow in there, you know, come on, we, we know that's just, you know. It, it's hard to justify that. And yet the politics are such that that stuff gets in there a lot. I don't know if there was, you know, when we've gone through this in Ohio, of course, there's always these fights over these various clauses around that, that are basically grandfather clauses, you know, districts that are losing kids. And, and you know, do you account for that right away or do you give them some, you know, some time before that really hits? I mean, there's all these different ways that districts know uh, what they've got to do to try to get yeah, as much I didn't money even as mention the they also had add-ons for K3 literacy programs, fourth grade tutoring, career and technical education. <laughs> so you begin to wonder, you know, it's it's definitely um, you know, there are people who want extra money for these programs, but yeah, it isn't often thought out in terms of how it's going to impact the bottom line. So look, it, it, you know, and, and as as our own Adam Tyner found in in a think again this year, we've made huge progress in this country on making school spending more progressive. And yes, we probably need to keep doing moving in that direction because we know, for example, it's a lot more expensive to attract high quality teachers to high poverty schools in general. So let's keep at it, you know. But let's also not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. At what point? At what point am I allowed to make it the enemy of the good, Mike? Three hundred dollars is like why bother? <laughs> oh, you mean that increase that in? Yeah, that's, not, in I mean, that's, a, that's the cost of a new textbook, and then you're done. All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for uh, David to be grumpy about this stuff. <laughs> but un- until next week, I'm David Griffith, and I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.